Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's open now to John chapter 20 and stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. This is the Word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself, so the other disciple who had come first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white sitting one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir... If you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have recorded this scene, this, this story, this history for us. And for all ages, we will be able to think upon this moment this time where you blessed Mary Magdalene with the reunion with her Savior. And Father, as we think upon his resurrection, I pray your blessing upon all of our thoughts and meditations. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Be seated. So this scene is one of my favorite scenes in all of Scripture. There are many different elements of this passage and the, the following passage that, that I like to mull over in my mind. Um, Peter and John running to the tomb after it's reported to them that Jesus' body has been taken away. 
and the competition that seems to be, well, not competition, it's just different body types, right? Um, there are the linen wrappings, right? The, the rolled up, there's the, the belief of the apostles in that statement, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And we think that's mind-boggling. How could they not know that at this point after he had told them time and time and time again that he was going to die and after three days rise? And then there's, at the end of all of this, they just depart and go to their homes. You know, just that would have been hard, right? An extraordinary event, and then you go to your home and it's kind of like, uh, you wouldn't want those moments to end. But then there's Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. Mary from Magdala. And her relationship to Jesus Christ. Uh, this passage is the reason we named our daughter Maggie, or Magdalene. right? Because we wanted everybody to think she was from Magdala. I think it's a perfect name for her, though. Um, no, it's because of this passage that we named her Magdalene. You'll remember the following details about Mary Magdalene from various accounts of her in the Gospels. First, remember this. Mark 16.9 refers to Mary as the one from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons. Seven demons had come out of her. Before she knew Jesus, she was a tortured soul. Right, She was quite literally a tortured soul. In Luke chapter 8, which is the only section outside of the, the passion narratives about Christ's death where um, Mary gets a mention, we read this. It says, soon afterwards, he began going, Jesus began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. A couple interesting things there, that there were the apostles that were going along with Jesus, but there was also this group of women all of whom had had this, it seems, healing by Jesus of evil spirits. And then those women uh, ended up uh, being benefactors to the apostles and to Jesus, using their money or their husband's money um, in order to support this ministry. We also know this about Mary Magdalene. While the apostles were scattered As Jesus was hanging from the cross, Mary was there at the cross. She was there. She watched her Savior die from a very near spot, very near the cross. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. The Marys are all standing there seeing the agony of their son, hearing his seven last words, and um, there's Mary Magdalene. She would have heard those seven words from the cross. She would have personally witnessed the agony of the one who had done so much for her and was, in fact, at that moment doing even more for her than cleansing her of demons. There's a worse fate than being 
being defiled by demons, and that's being defiled by sin. And every man ever born inherits the sin of Adam and has this problem with sin, which only Jesus has undone. Jesus had radically changed Mary Magdalene's life from demon-possessed outcast to follower and patron of Jesus Christ and the Twelve Apostles. There's some confusion about whether Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. And I believe she should be distinguished from the, the woman who anointed Jesus with oil and wiped his feet with her hair. Some say that that was Mary Magdalene. Um, that woman's beautiful act is recorded at the very end of the seventh chapter of Luke. And then Mary Magdalene is mentioned in the early part of Luke 8. Um, so the proximity has just led some to believe that that woman was Mary. I don't think Mary Magdalene was um, the prostitute mentioned in chapter 7. But still, but still, a, a woman possessed by seven demons would probably not be good company. Right? Mary Magdalene, who was demon-possessed seven times over, would have been, uh, would have been known for her out-of-control and sinful behavior, and perhaps her violence, right? Think of the man out of whom legion was cast. Here's a description of that demon-possessed man. You'll remember this. When Jesus got out of the boat immediately, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, And the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. Consequently, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. So when, so you see the violence and the, 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 what that demon had done to, uh, for that man, in a sense, to lose his mind. And, and so Mary Magdalene has seven demons within her, um, tormenting her. And when seven demons are cast out of one, one woman, you have to believe that there was instant radical change. Instant radical relief. Instant radical change for that Woman, seven demons afflicting her. Think of the reputation she probably had. She was probably notorious for just being erratic and dangerous and strange and uncontrolled, right? And certainly this physical possession was accompanied by corresponding sins. It probably led her into um, just a lack of self-control, right? And so she's sinning on her own, being provoked by the demon, and the demon is causing strange behavior and Mary Magdalene had had seven demons cast from her, so it would be safe to assume that she was then radically different after her encounter with Jesus when he cast out those demons. Jesus' mercy in her life would have been obvious. Obvious. In fact, I would argue that the mercy of Jesus coming into any man, woman, or child's life is always obvious it's obvious right changes come upon the man or the woman young or old who truly comes to know jesus conversion is a radical change 
from serving the devil to serving Jesus Christ. Right? Though, though serving the devil is not being possessed by a demon, that change from serving the flesh and the devil to serving Jesus Christ is still radical. We go from, we go from death to life. We go from hard-hearted to fleshy-hearted, from under the reigning control of sin to under the reigning control of God. From the old man to the new man, from separated from Christ to united to Christ, from born of the flesh to born of the spirit, from darkness to light, from enemy of God to lover of God, from a slave of sin and the prince of the power of the air to slave of God himself. That's radical change. That's radical change that accompanies every conversion. Every point of regeneration. This view of the radical nature of the transformation that happens in the Christian life is somewhat unpopular today, especially among reform types. Right? Reform types like to talk about how repentance is, it can kind of be seen, but sometimes it kind of can't be seen. That it's sometimes quiet and passive. I just don't see how life in Christ could be anything but radical change. Right? Certainly, certainly, here's the caveat, certainly if you're converted as an adult, it will be radical change. Many of you would tell of how God radically changed you in a moment, like the conversion of Paul like the casting out of the demons of Mary Magdalene, like the apostles who in a moment left their nets and followed Jesus Christ, like the multitudes who in the book of Acts right, heard the apostle Peter preaching and crying out, what must we do to be saved? Right? They're, they're like, well, and he's like, be, be baptized, repent and believe and be baptized. And they're like, they hear him preaching, what do we do? What do we do? Should this change, this tangible, perceivable, even radical change be absent from your Christian walk? Should there be no time period in your life in the church and walk with the Lord where you can say that the scales were removed from your eyes? Should there be no new birth? Should there be no heart in your head faith? Right? Should there be no fear of God that in trembling before him as you work out your salvation? Should there be no works accompanying your faith? I fear for you. I fear for you. Should there be no pursuit of holiness and radical break with sin? Then your faith in Christ may not exist. I fear the Holy Spirit has yet to penetrate your radically hard heart that you inherited from Adam. I fear there are many unconverted in the church who only intellectually know Jesus, right? Know things about him and who have not been radically changed by his spirit. An indication, a simple indication, and I'm reading Jonathan Edwards right now, so you know where all of this is coming from. A simple indication that that you have more of an intellectual faith is that you pursue holiness out of love for God because his glory is what fills your mind 
And it's that you want to be. You just want to be like your dad in heaven. Right? You want to be holy. And so you abhor sin. Right? You grieve when you sin and say stupid things to your family and, and hurt, hurt their feelings. And, and you, you strive to repent, but then you strive to live holy. And, when, and, and so that, that must be present. And so examine yourself. What has the past month been like? Have you at once, even once in the past month said, That grieved God. I need to repent. Mary Magdalene's great love for Jesus was born from his great love and work for her in her healing, in her conversion, in her restoration. Though you may not need demons to be excised from yourself, you may have a hard heart that must be changed. Right? Can this be done when you are young? Certainly. With John the Baptist, it seems it took place in the womb, right? But even his conversion led to action and fruit. He kicked his mother's belly. That's action. That is the fruit of regeneration, right? He acknowledged Jesus in worship, right? And he demonstrated the work of the Lord in his soul even there. Should there be nothing you can point to, no triumph over a specific sin, no burning desire to worship your Savior, no zeal to know more and more about your heavenly Father, no zeal to to put your face into the scriptures and learn of him, no love for your brothers and sisters in the church, no awe of God's holiness and desire for it, no demonstrated love like that of Mary Magdalene going to the tomb and standing outside of that tomb and weeping for her Savior, then you may not know Jesus. And if you don't know him, or if you know him on some level, perhaps you just know him like the demons know him. They know him, they acknowledge him, but they will not trust in him. Right? Should there be only lips that are willing to honor God, but a heart that is far from him, you may still be in your sins. If this is the case, if this is the case, as you think about yourself, think about yourself honestly, please. Think about yourself honestly. If this is the case, I urge you to call upon Jesus Christ. Call upon him. I urge you to put on hold every other duty that you have and instead call upon Jesus to change your heart. Knock and he will open up to you. Knock. Then you, like Mary Magdalene, will know a radically new outlook, a new freedom that you've never experienced, a uh, a new love for people that you've never known, a, a new... Um, a new trust, a new way to live each day, right? Uh, A a new hope. You'll have hope. Now notice this too about this passage. Mary does not recognize Jesus. Why doesn't Mary recognize Jesus? After conversing with the angels in verse 14, um, it says she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus. 
I don't think that she is just flighty or preoccupied or distracted, though there are times I've been so shocked I didn't recognize obvious things around me and my wife has driven through a stoplight into another car. I mean, we do things like that where we're just not seeing what's, what's before us. In, in this case, that could partially explain her ignorance, but really I think there's something different about Jesus. This is not the only time after, the, after Jesus' resurrection that someone did not recognize him. So too, the disciples on the road to Emmaus did not recognize him. Luke 24.16 makes it clear that God had made it so those men wouldn't recognize him. It says, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Right? And also at the end of the book of John, chapter 21, we read that Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James and John get into a boat to fish. Jesus appears on the shore, and they are close enough that Peter can swim to the shore uh, faster than the boat can get there, 100 yards, we're told. But verse 4 says, But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. It was not until the miracle of the fish that Peter figured out who it is. It's the Lord. So Jesus has changed. Yes, he's still man, but he's taken God Almighty's blows for our sins. Right? His body has suffered and died, and now he is alive. He is the first fruits of those who are asleep. He's the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So this is resurrected manhood. This is no longer the likeness of sinful flesh, flesh that can decay and die. Right? This, this body is now glorified and perfected manhood. It has glorious strength. It has profound majesty. What once was vulnerable is now sanctified, beatified, resurrected from death to life. Did the resurrection make his appearance change? Perhaps, it seems so. Did they have eyes to recognize him? No, not at first. As the passage about Jesus on the road to Emmaus stated, Mary can look straight at him and not know it is him, so it seems his appearance was changed or something. This is glorified manhood. It's triumphant manhood. It's second Adam glorified. So when does Mary recognize Jesus? When he calls her by name. That's when she recognizes him. At first, Jesus addresses her generically, woman. He says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And Mary Magdalene pleads with the man that she supposes to be the gardener to tell her where he's taken her body, his body. And then Jesus says, Mary, Mary. And she knows who has spoken. He speaks her name with the same inflection he did when they were together, and she knows who has spoken to her. A commentator remarks, when Mary had supposed him to be, the, be only the gardener, she had no interest in him or anything he might say. But now she had heard her name from Jesus' lips and as sheep know the voice of their shepherd when he calls them by name, so she recognized him and responded joyfully. 
Jesus had called her by name. He knew her. She knew him. And some hours before, when she looked at Jesus dying on the cross, she thought she would never hear that name again out of Jesus' lips. Never hear him speak. And then she heard his voice. Imagine her joy. She responds by saying in Hebrew, my teacher, Rabboni. Do you know Jesus in this way? Do you know him as yours? That's why she was thrilled to be with Jesus, because Jesus was hers. right? Do you know him as yours? Do you know him in such a way that you are assured he knows your name? right? Do you know him as a friend, as a savior, as a teacher, as a father? I keep coming back to this expression of Jonathan Edwards from his personal narrative, but it shows that he had a relationship with God. A relationship with God. For some reason... For some reason, Reformed believers don't like to talk about relationships with God. Sounds too evangelical, sounds too smushy, but I think it's critical. I think it's critical. But it shows that Jonathan Edwards had a relationship with God of the kind I'm trying to describe through Mary Magdalene's experience. Again, he said, I found from time to time an inward sweetness that would carry me away in my contemplations. This I know not how to express otherwise than by a calm, sweet abstraction of soul from all the concerns of this world, and sometimes a kind of vision or fixed ideas and imaginations of being alone in the mountains or some solitary wilderness, far from all mankind, sweetly conversing with Christ, and wrapped and swallowed up in God. The sense I had of divine things would often of a sudden kindle up, as it were, a sweet burning in my heart, an ardor of soul that I know not how to express. You know, again, I, I, I say this. I fear for those who have heads filled with all kinds of facts about Jesus and who know the biblical languages. Even all kinds of of history with Jesus, but can walk away from him and not give him an ounce of thought when you are away from church or away from Christian friends. Those who do not have a constancy of thought about the lover of their souls. Is Jesus in your thoughts when you are all alone? As Mary supposed she was at the tomb. Is Jesus in your thoughts when you're all by yourself? Is that when Jesus is most in your thoughts? Perhaps it's harder when you're with others to have Jesus in your thoughts. Mary Magdalene couldn't abide the thought of being without her Jesus, and so she goes to the grave when no one else was there. She was going to be close to his dead body. Right? And he's a resurrected king to which we have access as his people. Do we glory in that access? Do we rest in it? Do we go back to it time and time again and find there our, 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 our sweet, sweet rest? Do you know Jesus? Do you simply long to be with him where he is? Some of you long to conquer death. Some of you long to live forever. But do you long to be with the Savior of your soul? Right? The only way to overcome death in a happy way, is to long for the one who has overcome death. 
right? Mary wants to be with her Lord and Savior. She misses a person, not a concept, right? Not a tradition, not a, a, a systematic theology, not a church building, not a philosophical tradition. She misses Jesus, the man. She misses Jesus, the man, her God. And we see how much she misses him in her actions. When she understood that the man in front of her was Jesus, she wraps her arms around him. She clings to her Lord and Savior, and Jesus says, Stop clinging to me. I never get the inflection of that right. I'm sure it was tender, but it always comes across as if I'm saying it angrily. Stop clinging to me! I'm just thinking of my kids. Um, I'm sure it was tender. I'm sure it was tender, right? He's not being unkind. He's not being short-tempered. The words that follow are some of the most gracious words that he ever spoke. They are filled with glorious meaning. Jesus says, I ascend to my Father and my God. No, that's not quite it, right? I ascend to my Father and your Father. I ascend to my God and your God. I mean, that's Jesus bringing Mary on his level. It's only been three days since the apostles all abandoned him. When the shepherd was hanging from the tree, the sheep were scattered. No doubt, Peter is still grieving deeply. He's licking the wounds of his conscience after denying Jesus three times. And so Jesus here wants Mary to go tell all those deserters, those deniers, those cowards, those sinners, that they share a God and a Father with the Almighty Son. These words are stupendous. These words express the deepest kind of love. This is the redemptive love of God towards sinners. Right? That the Son of God would say, My Father and your Father? My God and your God? Do you see what that means for you and for me? Wrapped up in that confession of Jesus is the content of Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10 says this, 19 to 23. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Right? All of that dense theology is packed into Jesus' statement, my God, your God. If you are united to Christ, the life you now live is one of fellowship with God Almighty, we have been adopted into God's family. Romans eight fifteen. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with them, so that we may also be glorified with them. So Jesus' crucifixion was his selflessness on a cosmic scale. He eternally 
fellowshiped with his glorious father. He submitted to his will to save miserable creatures. He took on flesh. He died on the cross. He, he, he conquered death. And were we in Jesus' place, at that point we would feel entitled for a little father time, a little me time, right? I've done my service. We would feel entitled to have the Father to ourselves for a time, and John 17 would end in a different place than it does. Not with us creatures knowing the love of the Father, but just with the Son praying to be with the Father, a restoration of what was broken by the cross. But still, utterly selfless, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, shares the Father. I ascend to my Father and your Father. He shares the Father. Were we in Jesus' shoes, Mary's clinging will be met with, stop clinging to me, give me some space, let me be with my Father. For just a moment, have I not done enough? But not so with Jesus, the lover of our souls, my Father and your Father. My Father and your Father. Jesus and Mary have, and every adopted child of God, have this in common, God as their Father. Ritterboss writes, here again we pick up the note recurrent in Jesus' farewell words that his departure is to the advantage of his disciples. It brings them into the closest possible fellowship with the Father. Hence the repeated to my and to your. Emphasizes not the difference between Jesus and his disciples, but what they have in common. Because God is Jesus' Father, he is also their Father. Because he is Jesus' God, he is also their God. And they are taken up into fellowship that unites Jesus and the Father. And Calvin talks of the confidence that we should take from these words of our Savior. Listen to what he says. I ascend, he says, to my Father who is also your Father. In other passages we learn that we are made partakers of all the blessings of Christ. But this is the foundation of the privilege. That he imparts to us the very fountain of blessings. It is unquestionably an invaluable blessing that believers can safely and firmly believe that he who is the God of Christ is their God. And that he who is the Father of Christ is their Father. Nor have we any reason to fear that this confidence will be charged with rashness since it is founded on Christ or that it will be proud boasting, since Christ himself has dictated it to us with his own mouth. My God and your God. My God and your God. Such gracious words to Mary. Where I go, you will go. What I have, you will have. What I am, you are a son of the Almighty God. And so this is what we celebrate in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My God and your God. So celebrate this day when we remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? Do you know him? You will too one day rise from the dead to resurrection of life if you know him. Celebrate the fact that he has gone to be with the Father as you will one day go to be with the Father. Celebrate the fact that Jesus forever dwells within the wonderful light of his Father, who is love, just as you will dwell forever in that eternal love. Amen.